Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of Beyond the Scope. Today our host, Dr. Nicole Jackson of the King County Medical Examiner's Office in Seattle, Washington, speaks with Dr. Barbara Sampson of the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Dr. Sampson is the former Chief Medical Examiner for New York City, having served 23 years in the Medical Examiner's Office, including nine years as the first woman to lead the department. We'll hear their conversation about mentorship and leadership, as well as cutting-edge techniques in the New York City Medical Examiner's Office used to identify decedents, track the opioid crisis, and manage the COVID pandemic. Now here's your host, Dr. Jackson. Welcome to another episode. This is Dr. Jackson, and I have the honor of introducing uh, Dr. Barbara Sampson. Um, And I just thought we'd start by um, starting a little about you and what got you into medicine, and then how'd you go from medicine specifically into forensics? Well, I grew up as the daughter of two physicians, uh, both clinicians. My mom is an ophthalmologist and my dad was an internist. And so I didn't even know you could be anything besides a doctor until I was like 10 years old. So nighttime uh, conversation, dinnertime conversation was always uh, about what kind of doctor I would be. And one day my dad said, probably when I was about 10 years old, how about a pathologist? And of course, being a regular 10-year-old, I had no idea what a pathologist was. I said, what's that? And he said, it's the doctor's doctor. And I love that concept. And as an internist, he very much valued always having an autopsy in his patients and how important the autopsy is as the foundation of all of medicine. So he told me about that. And I thought that was very interesting. And then I learned about forensic pathology. I think my mom may have said that it sounded very interesting to her to apply you know, pathology in a, a public setting, uh, forensics, right? The uh, uh, means uh, public forum. Uh, and uh, the more I learned about everything, uh, nothing changed my mind. I did some research for a bunch of years, which was very interesting, but I still thought, I always wanted to be a forensic pathologist because it's kind of the crossroads between medicine, uh, public health, uh, public service, uh, and the criminal justice system. And I thought that combination uh, was uh, fascinating and would uh, open up lots of different avenues to do uh, different kinds of things uh, as I moved throughout my career. And uh, as I look back now, it, it certainly did. Uh, can I ask, did anything almost uh, get your attention and sway you into another career or specialty? Uh, not really. Uh, when I was uh, very young, I saw Barbara Walters once on TV and I said to my mom, I wanted to be like her. And she just <laughs> laughed at me and uh, we never spoke of it again. <laughs> and then as I went through uh, medical school, I definitely was always interested in the pathophysiology of disease much more so than actually treating disease. Uh, That just intellectually to me was very stimulating. So since I knew about forensic, about pathology, um, I knew that that was going to be my calling. Now, when I got to residency, I of course did like other areas of pathology as well. Uh, I love infectious disease pathology. I love GI pathology, actually, uh, which is surprising to most people. Um, but, uh, you know, nothing really dissuaded me uh, from forensics. All right. As uh, the chief of the, the largest medical examiner's office um, in the nation, can you share, you know, that can't be an 
easy role, um, some role models you had, some mentors, and then any advice you can give toward people that are trying to be mentors um, to either women or other underrepresented populations? Oh, mentors are absolutely critical at every stage in your career. You know, it seems most obvious when you're junior. Uh, and I was very lucky from my undergraduate research days to have uh, great mentors who really took me under their wing and spent a lot of time with me uh, patiently, uh, helping me develop my career. Uh, I was also fortunate in pathology to have uh, been mentored by Ramsey Cotran, who is the father of modern pathology in my book, and of course, uh, Charles Hirsch, who is the father of uh, modern forensic pathology. Uh, and they were both you know, absolutely tremendous people, uh, as well as mentors. I think what made them special is that they always took time to talk to me. Uh, I remember Dr. Hirsch taking time to talk to me when I was must have been a first year medical student and I was all excited about forensics. And I went, uh, he made, I made an appointment with him and he treated me with the same respect uh, that day as a medical student, first year medical student, as he did when I was his first deputy, you know, two, two decades later. Um, and I think that uh, is, is very important that we all respect uh, the trainees, the residents, uh, and uh, you know, really value um, being their mentor. They're, my first mentor as, uh, as an undergraduate um, told me the greatest achievement for a mentor is to see your mentee surpass you and to do things that you could have never dreamed of. And that is the sign of true success. And that's always stuck with me. Uh, and I think is very motivating uh, for uh, mentors. Uh, as far as women mentors in particular, I think that is very, very important. Uh, first and foremost in my life is my mother, as I said, as a physician uh, who graduated from medical school in 1960, when there was maybe one or two women in each medical school class. Um, she, you know, she was always an inspiration. I never doubted that I could do medicine. And she, uh, you know, when she was interviewing for residencies uh, as an ophthalmologist, obviously then and now very competitive specialty, she would be asked, uh, why should we give this spot to a woman when uh, you're going to take a bunch of years off to go raise a family? You know, that's unthinkable to us today, right? Um, you know, we certainly still, uh, as women, um, have uh, challenges uh, mm -hmm. in uh, medicine, uh, in science in general. Um, but, uh, you know, we've definitely come a very long way from that. Uh, so um, uh, I think that is uh, very important uh, for women to continue to mentor uh, other women, uh, particularly in, in medicine. Uh, I had a wonderful mentor, a still dear friend, uh, Gail Winters, uh, during my residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, an outstanding cardiac pathologist, and she was a real a big reason why I went into uh, specializing in cardiac pathology and uh, ultimately the pathology related to sudden cardiac death. So, um, but I find that mentors are equally important now. When I was deciding to make this transition into the academic world, I reached out to many of those mentors that I had had in uh, uh, residency, who uh, are still guiding me. 
in, in my career decisions. So definitely keep up those relationships. Can you tell us, you know, New York City, we have the five boroughs. Can you tell us about the structure of that medical examiner's office and how you sure. have jurisdiction over five different boroughs? <laughs> well, it is uh, a, a very big office. Um, we cover the uh, New York City, the five boroughs of New York City. Uh, you know, Long Island and upstate are separate jurisdictions. Um, but that's plenty big uh, at a population of about eight and a half million that uh, at least pre-COVID, uh, that population rose to over 10 million during the day as people come into uh, the city for uh, work. So we have um, the structure of the office uh, as far as the medical examiner portion of the office goes is that we have uh, morgues in uh, uh, Brooklyn, Queens, uh, and Manhattan. Uh, and the cases are uh, divided basically by geography. Uh, and each office is fully functioning office, uh, runs similarly, but not exactly. There's a borough deputy in charge of each of those offices, um, all under the auspices of the first deputy uh, in, uh, located in Manhattan, and of course, then the chief. Um, so that's how the medical examiner uh, side of things works. Uh, we have about 37 uh, approximately medical examiners on staff. Um, which uh, we are very grateful that, to have. Uh, we have a large training program. Uh, this year we have five uh, fellows in uh, forensic pathology, as well as two fellows in uh, forensic uh, neuropathology and cardiac pathology, which is a special ACGME accredited program that uh, uh, we have in order to make people the best medical examiners they can be with a focus in neuropathology and cardiac pathology. So that's the medical examiner side of things. We are also the uh, medical examiner's office is the DNA lab for New York City, uh, mostly involved with identifications, uh, whether it be from homicides, sexual assault kits, property crimes, and missing persons, uh, including of course those uh, lost in 9-11. That the effort to identify those people does continue through today. And then the third major area the office covers is of course mass fatality events, uh, which uh, we are unfortunately the uh, unwilling uh, expert uh, in that after our experiences uh, in 9-11, uh, the crash of uh, Flight 587 a few months later, and now obviously uh, with uh, COVID. Busy office. Um, as our listeners know, you know, we've been in an opioid pandemic for years, if not longer. Can you tell us what your office has done um, in terms of opioid detection or drug surveillance for New York City? Absolutely. Our office has a very rich tradition in forensic toxicology. In fact, we were the first forensic toxicology lab uh, in the United States, dating back to the turn of the last century. Uh, where there was a, um, uh, when there was a uh, uh, epidemic, mini epidemic of uh, poisonings in New York City. And while there was uh, the ability to test for poisons themselves, no one had developed techniques to, de uh, to detect poisons in human tissues. So the lab was set up to do that. And it's a that story is beautifully told in a book called The Poisoner's Handbook, mm -hmm. if anybody is uh, interested in reading that fascinating history. So the lab continues through today. Uh, we have a, a, a wonderful uh, laboratory led um, 
by a wonderful uh, PhD scientist. We have a uh, toxicology lab that prides on itself on being uh, keeping up with the cutting edge developments uh, in uh, the opioids that are being seen uh, in the Northeast. So I'm proud to be able to say that we are doing full autopsies on every uh, decedent that we suspect uh, dies of a drug overdose and full uh, toxicology. In addition, it became clear very early that this information was needed very rapidly by both public health officials and um, the uh, law enforcement. Uh, you're waiting two months for a toxicology report for us to you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's was not really cutting it. So Dr. Jason Graham, who has now taken over as the acting chief medical examiner, uh, spearheaded a program uh, by which we convey uh, uh, information about cases in real time we have people going through cases as they come in every day, uh, assessing how likely the case is to be a drug overdose. And we've scientifically proven that we're very accurate in predicting, predicting that. Uh, and then conveying that information to relevant um, partners. Uh, so for example, if there are two people died overnight in a particular building in Brooklyn, say, uh, that would, we would alert the police that there may be a quote unquote bad batch of drugs uh, in that area. And so that they can act on it, you know, before uh, any other fatalities or illnesses might occur. Another interesting initiative um, your office has is the public genetics lab. Um, and I wanted to use this as a time to kind of dovetail into your experience in cardiovascular pathology, as well as the role of the forensic pathologist as a vital link for genetic counseling. Just tickle your brain about all of that. So when I was a resident, I did a fellowship in cardiovascular pathology. And at that time, I was up in Boston and we were uh, examining the uh, difficult cardiac cases from the medical examiner's office there. So I had the opportunity to analyze these cases in a very academic setting with you know, the best and the brightest uh, in cardiology and cardiovascular pathology. Uh, and that really got me excited about cardiac pathology and the contribution that we could make uh, in investigating uh, these deaths. So when I got to the medical examiner's office after a couple of years, after my fellowship and all, uh, I went to Dr. Hirsch, uh, the chief medical examiner, and I said, you know, there's these whole group of diseases called cardiac channelopathies that kill people uh, suddenly and unexpectedly without leaving any trace either grossly or microscopically for us to find at the autopsy. This was 20, 25 years ago when uh, channelopathies were just uh, being understood. And I said, this is unacceptable in the 20th century, 21st century, that uh, you know we're, we're definitely missing all these cases. Um, and we could set up genetic testing for that. And in his typical Dr. Hirsch way, he said, good, go ahead, set up the lab. <laughs> so I, I walked out of his office with my you know, tail between my legs, <laughs> figure, trying to figure out how in the world I was going to do this. Um, but we had the uh, distinct advantage of having this DNA lab uh, granted 20 years ago and still in its uh, relative infancy. Um, but we had the infrastructure already set up to begin addressing uh, genetic causes for sudden death. 
Uh, so eventually we hired Dr. Yingying Tang, who is still the director of the molecular genetics lab. And she set this up. We started very simply looking at cases of uh, pulmonary thromboembolism uh, for uh, uh, genetic uh, predispositions to thrombophilia. Uh, and then it grew uh, into these channelopathies and it's grown and grown and grown until today where we have using next generation sequencing, we're looking at a panel of 200 or so genes, uh, many of which are channelopathy genes associated with sudden death cardiomyopathy genes. Um, although we see you know, uh, telltale signs at autopsy in say hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, not every case is classic and having that genetic confirmation is very, very important to, to us. Uh, in addition, we've recently expanded to genetic testing for epilepsy. So uh, people with uh, no obvious uh, cause for their epilepsy um, uh, gets, get this testing, uh, as well as uh, testing for aortopathies. So we're beginning to test uh, the uh, people who die of aortic dissections um, mm -hmm. without an obvious underlying cause, like hypertension or cocaine, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, so lots of infer interesting information coming from that. Uh, very important for the death certificate, of course, which is critically important to us. Uh, and of course, to public health. Uh, you know, if nobody's testing for cardiac channelopathies, it doesn't mean nobody's dying of them, right? <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to do that. Uh, and um, also, as you alluded to, critically important potentially for family members. Uh, so we uh, have had a genetic counselor on board uh, at the medical examiner's office who uh, is, uh, of course, medical examiners do speak to the families about the results. But in addition, when more in-depth uh, analysis is needed, the genetic counselor speaks with the families when they're ready uh, and then connects them to uh, um, clinics that we have uh, here in the city that will see families uh, free of charge, at least initially, uh, and assess how at risk they may or may not be. So at the lab, at the medical examiner's office, although it is cap accredited and could do living uh, testing on living people, we have chosen not to do that because that is obviously beyond our mandate uh, as the city's medical examiner's office. But we have connections to these uh, clinics that will set that up for uh, uh, family members who may be at risk. And they will have the information that we got from the autopsy so that they can really focus on which uh, gene mutations they should be looking for, which decreases the cost of the testing. So I think it's a really valuable tool. We only get like good, true answers in maybe 15% or so of cases that we do the testing on. I'm talking about now the uh, sudden cardiac death uh, mm -hmm. cases, but there's a whole bunch of cases where we get variants of undetermined significance, so-called VUSs, that I think once we um, learn more about uh, these genes, these mutations, and given that in my eyes, we've done the ultimate experiment here because we have uh, someone who has died suddenly and unexpectedly with no findings uh, at autopsy after a very complete autopsy, including you know, cardiac pathology review, neuropathology review, all the ancillary testing uh, that you could imagine. Um, you know, I think a lot of these VUSs will eventually become important. And we do look back at our older cases uh, from time to time 
looking for you know, updates in the literature and on the, the mutations that we have found to see if any of them have crossed into the pathogenic link. So interesting. Um, I wanted to shift gears now. Um, our listeners might not know, I'm actually from New Jersey and a lot of my family's in Manhattan. And I still look back to September 11th. Um, you know, at the time I was in high school, did lose some people in the community to the attacks. And now, you know, I'm a forensic pathologist looking back and can't imagine, you know, being in the office that was at the center of the response to the attacks. Um, so you could, can you speak more to your experience being in the office during that unique time? So it was uh, obviously a very scary time, a very sad time. Um, uh, many of the people in the medical examiner's office had loved ones who were down there or were first responders. And, you know, for so many hours, days, we didn't know, you know, what happened. Um, and uh, that was, of course, very challenging, but it became clear within, you know, very short period of time uh, what kind of event this was. And um, as New Yorkers, I think the medical examiners and uh, our, all our staff were at a distinct advantage because everybody wanted to do something to help. And there was nothing to do to help. You know, people wanted to give blood, I, I, you know, as, as you recall. And, you know, unfortunately, blood was not needed. Uh, and uh, obviously, people could help downtown at the pile. But it was just clear from the beginning that we had a job to do. And that was to identify as many people as possible who perished that day. Nearly 3,000 people died that day. Uh, and to this day, uh, we've only made a scientific identification for about 60% of those people. Um, the families do, of course, have death certificates. We worked that out. Dr. Hirsch worked that out very quickly um, so as not to add a burden uh, onto these families at the worst time of their lives. Um, but he also made a commitment that the office would do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to identify as many people as possible. And we have kept to that commitment. So as DNA technology improves, we try different things on the remains that we have left. And very shortly, we will be using next generation sequencing of the specific technique that has been used very success successfully by the military to identify you know, those killed in combat um, on, on these remains. So we are very optimistic about that. Um, in the uh, fall was the 20th anniversary uh, of the attack, the largest homicide in, in United States history. And uh, that uh, uh, summer we did make two new identifications. Um, so the work is slowly but continuously uh, going on. I, uh, Dr. Hirsch and then I uh, always met with the families uh, a lot at the very beginning. Uh, more recently, uh, uh, on uh, the uh, Voices of uh, September 11th, holds a uh, meeting every September 10th that uh, we participate in to update all the families uh, about uh, what our efforts are and to answer uh, any of their questions. We know the wishes of all the family members, uh, whether they want to be notified when we make an identification, whether they do not. Uh, and uh, you know they are in communication with us, especially now as a new generation of you know uh, family members who were uh, unborn or very very young at the time of the attack are now adults 
and want, some of them want to know more uh, about what we are doing. So this has actually been looking back the most rewarding part of being a medical examiner in New York City, because as a medical examiner, you know, we make an impact uh, often with families, right? Explaining to families what happened to their loved one. But we rarely have an opportunity to develop relationships with families over the course of decades. And that's what has happened here. The families that we've known for so long keep coming back and they're practically friends and part of the family. And uh, it's, it's something that maybe you don't expect to have as a forensic uh, pathologist. You know, that's something more the, you know, uh, primary care doc has, the old time primary care doc has. But uh, it was very rewarding to be able to, uh, you know, uh, help these families, continue to help them and call them uh, my friends as well. That's awesome. Um, so shifting gears from September 11th to the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we all know, New York City's was one of the early epicenters for the pandemic. Uh, so can you share the office's experiences, um, especially in those early months and responding to the needs of the community? So just to compare a little bit with 9-11, which I've done a lot in my head, having experienced both <laughs> events. Um, you know, in some ways it was similar, in some ways it different. Similar in that we knew exactly what we had to do, but the question was totally different. Uh, and this is an important concept in forensic pathology in general. There's, there's always a question we have to answer. In 9-11, uh, we needed to uh, identify as many people as possible, right? Identification was the issue. In uh, COVID, identity was not at all the issue. But what was is just uh, fatality management, managing large numbers of decedents. Uh, in New York City, the medical examiner's office is also the city's mortuary. So by statute, we were responsible for um, all those uh, fatalities that you know, could not be accommodated by, um, uh, by the hospitals or by the funeral uh, industry. Uh, so, uh, in 9-11, we knew pretty quickly uh, what we were up against. Uh, of course, the first few days, we weren't sure how many terrorist attacks there would be, but it became clear quickly that uh, you know, it was these uh, few major events uh, that happened on 9-11 that we were going to be dealing with. Very different from COVID, because as uh, New York City was the uh, first uh, <laughs> city uh, to uh, encounter this, it felt like a wave of fatalities was coming, a wave of the pandemic was coming and hitting us. And we did not know how big that wave was going to be, when it would crest and what would happen when it broke. Um, so, you know, in the uh, spring of 2020, there were a few days there that we were pushing uh, about 800 fatalities a day. Uh, fortunately, it didn't get any higher than that. Um, but that was, you know, uh, more than sufficient to overwhelm, of course, the hospitals uh, and the funeral industry. We were very well prepared, however, because uh, as far back as 2013, we had been planning for some kind of uh, uh, pandemic event like this, uh, mm -hmm. in particular, the uh, 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 influenza, an influenza outbreak. Mm -hmm. And we had planned how we were going to support hospitals uh, in the event of a large number of fatalities. Uh, from um, you know natural deaths that did not fall under our jurisdiction, and that is when we came up with this plan of actually uh, expanding hospital morgues by 
having what has been come to known, become known as a body collection point, a refrigerated trailer outside each hospital. And we have trained with all the hospitals. They know what they need to do and what we need to do uh, in order to successfully uh, manage uh, this, this kind of event. So that worked uh, 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 pretty well, but the numbers were just, you know, extraordinary. So it uh, required, uh, you know, and like any good plan, you plan, you plan, you practice, uh, and then you pivot when, <laughs> when it's necessary. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, and, you know, we ended up uh, establishing four different morgues, ultimately consolidated in one uh, uh, morgue, uh, very large morgue in Brooklyn. Uh, with both refrigerated trailers and unfortunately with uh, freezer units were also required. But our job in this case was to take care of deceased in a respectful manner, in a professional manner, uh, and until, first of all, the funeral industry could catch up. Uh, and uh, as importantly, families could catch up, you know, here in the, especially in the beginning, other family members were also sick. Uh, we were under lockdown conditions. People were losing their jobs. They didn't have the money to bury their loved ones, even if there, there was that opportunity. So our job was simply to buy people some time so that um, they could finally honor their loved ones uh, in the way that they uh, chose to do so. Very, that was a very moving um, answer. Thank you for that. Um, switching over, do you have a most memorable or memorable case or cases, something that sticks with you you'll never forget? Well, for you know, one my, reason or another, whether it's super silly my, or very touching. My research uh, before becoming a medical examiner was uh, in infectious disease and microbiology. Uh, and so when I was in my second year of fellowship, which back in 1999 was forensic neuropathology uh, at the office of chief medical examiner, um, I had the opportunity to define an emerging infectious disease in Queens, uh, <laughs> which is something I would have never guessed in a million years. Before. Absolutely not in Queens. <laughs> not in Queens, exactly. <laughs> And what happened, uh, you know, in 1990, in the fall of 1999, uh, when I was the neuropathology fellow, is that there was the West Nile encephalitis mm -hmm. outbreak uh, in Queens. Uh, and at the time, uh, a very astute cl clinician at Flushing Hospital noticed that there were four patients on uh, a respirator with encephalitis in her ICU. They never had any patients with encephalitis. <laughs> so she knew something was up. Uh, and she reported it to the Department of Health. And that began the uh, investigation into what was going on here. At the same time, birds were dying, uh, falling out of the sky, literally. Uh, animals were dying in the Bronx Zoo. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work with the pathologist at the Bronx Zoo uh, to uh, work up the neuropathology for the first four fatalities uh, from West Nile uh, here in Queens uh, to define that pathology. And uh, at the time, the etiologic agent was not known. Um, the CDC wasn't really sure what was going on. And it was the tissue that we got from those autopsies that we shared with USAMRI, which is the US Army Infectious Disease Group, 
that finally identified it as uh, West Nile. And that was because they were the U.S. Army. So they had uh, probes that they were using for troops that developed encephalitis in the Middle East. So it occurred to them that this could potentially be West Nile encephalitis, and indeed uh, it was. So they saved the day. Uh, again, the value of the autopsy, you know, that tissue was so, so important in making um, the, the diagnosis uh, and proving that it was a mosquito-borne uh, uh, disease. And that's when spraying uh, in New York City uh, got going and in the rest of the country as well as West Nile uh, spread farther. So that uh, one year into my career as a, a New York City medical examiner, I think was the most uh, interesting um, thing that I could ever imagine uh, happening. Uh, awesome. There's been lots of other great things too uh, along the way. All right, changing gears a little. So as the chief medical examiner, many offices you get the high profile case, especially New York City. Uh, so I wanted to pick your brain about how do you man manage that pressure, you know, knowing that, you know, you're doing everything right to the best of your ability and maybe half of the world or the U.S. is going to attack your professional opinion. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I always have an issue with the term high profile. Of course, I know what you mean. Uh, right. It's a case that comes into a public, the public's attention. Uh, whether it's a celebrity or someone who's in the public eye uh, because of that. But I always maintain that we don't know who is the high profile case as a medical examiner. First of all, we often don't know who the person is, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, when we uh, begin our investigation. Uh, and we certainly don't know who they're related to or what books they may have written or, you know, what, YouTube channel they have and all, all of this. Um, so uh, I really believe that we have to treat every case like it is a high profile case. And every case is a high profile case to someone. Mm -hmm. Everyone is somebody's mom or sister or child. Uh, and they should not be and uh, uh, in our office are, are not treated uh, any differently. You're gonna get the same uh, multi-million dollar workup if you need it, <laughs> um, or, uh, at, at, as, as if you were uh, a, a celebrity. Of course, there are you know, media uh, inquiries when it comes to uh, these so-called high-profile deaths. We're very fortunate that we have a public affairs officer who deals with uh, the inquiries and is a, kind of a little bit of a shield. Of course, there is also, you know, uh, high profile cases and like, for example, in police involved um, deaths and, and many other kinds of, you know, uh, terrible events that are thrust us in unwillingly uh, into the spotlight. And how I deal with it uh, is the way Dr. Hirsch taught me is, and that is just to stick to the truth and to use science and medicine uh, as our uh, guides. Uh, to be 100% truthful. Uh, and that in the end, uh, I have to believe will, will, will out in the end. Okay. That, uh, and uh, that uh, seems to have worked at least in the 23 years uh, that I uh, have been there. All right. Uh, moving to the, the topic of wellness, you know, we see death face to face almost every day. Uh, and certainly, as people know, you know, the deaths we deal with usually are violent or suspicious. 
can be very emotionally taxing. So what do you do? What are some things you like to do in your downtime to help bring balance to your life? Well, I uh, totally agree with you. And the attitude toward wellness has such so dramatically changed over the course of my career. You know, when we were there in 9-11, you know, again, horrible, horrible experience. Uh, we just toughed it out. And, you know, we were there with the cops and, you know, we had a job to do and that was it. And we kind of scoffed at any kind of help that, uh, you know, uh, uh, wonderful uh, social workers and, uh, you know, psychologists were trying to give us. That has dramatically changed. Uh, uh, and we uh, at the office have put a lot of effort into developing a uh, quite extensive wellness program that involves everything from therapy dogs to yoga to nutrition. Uh, and uh, I think it has been um, uh, very well received. Um, still trying to get buy-in uh, from you know, uh, people who are a little bit uh, resistant, but I have personally found it so helpful. So my recipe for success in, in dealing with this stress uh, has developed into a daily meditation practice. So I use one of the apps and I meditate probably for about 20 minutes a day. I find that very relaxing, usually in the morning before I dive into my day. <laughs> and then exercise also and everything. I do a little bit of everything so as to avoid injury. Um, so, but everything from yoga to running. Uh, and I find that very uh, uh, grounding. Um, therapy dogs are great if you have, or just visiting uh, some uh, pets. I find I don't personally have a pet due to allergies, but I do enjoy visiting with them. And then I also find um, water very relaxing. Mm. So Manhattan, believe it or not, is an island. <laughs> and so I do live relatively near uh, a walkway along the East River, and that always calms me down. And we're also pretty close to a number of beautiful beaches. So on the weekends, I love to go walk on the boardwalk or walk on the beach, and that very much relaxes me. But definitely, you have to take time for yourself. Dr. Hirsch used to put it, you, as a medical examiner, you know, we see the worst that everybody can do to each other, and we know how precious and how short life can be, and you never know what is going to happen to you. So take the time, he used to say, to smell the roses. And he used to actually grow his own roses. So it really meant, <laughs> meant something to him. And I think everybody in forensics uh, needs to do that. In, in anything, not just forensics, but any field. I agree 100% and have been very happy to see, even in my short career, the shift to focusing on wellness for the benefit of everyone. You know, us, the communities we serve, our families. So I agree with you 100%, especially with the meditating, getting your mind focused for the day. All right, looking at your time back in the New York City office, is there anything you would have done differently? You know, um, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, hindsight is always 2020. Uh, this wellness program, certainly I would have embraced that earlier. Uh, and um, uh, more directly around 9-11, because I, I uh, have not been uh, diagnosed uh, with PTSD, but I'm pretty sure I have it. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, you know, taking more attention to that more earlier in my career uh, would have been uh, certainly more um, uh, uh, valuable. But I think, you know, sticking to, you know, what I love as far as education 
and uh, you know, educating the next generation, um, uh, cardiac pathology, uh, and uh, you know, uh, being there for families at the worst time of their lives. You know, could things have sometimes probably been done better? But probably. Um, but you know, it's 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 hard uh, to say because you know we're all doing the best we can uh, as as we go forward with the limitations that are imposed upon us. You know, we all work in um, uh, area in an area that is has restricted uh, amounts of money associated with it, uh, and um, we're at the uh, whim of a lot of political forces that are beyond our control. Uh, I've been very lucky here in New York City that Dr. Hirsch really established the importance of a strong medical examiner's in uh, office in New York City uh, back when he took over in 1989. So I certainly didn't have to convince anybody of that here, but I uh, think that that is something that you know many jurisdictions uh, are struggling with, uh, and I hope that you know we can be an example of how. Um, the benefits that a city, a town, jurisdiction can have uh, when they do have a strong medical examiner's office. And looking forward, um, can you tell us about your new role you're, you're assuming? Well, first of all, I am continuing as the cardiovascular pathology consultant for the New York City office, and I will continue to teach the fellows there, which is a part of the job that I enjoyed the most uh, throughout my career. Um, so I'm very happy to keep that connection going. Um, here at Mount Sinai, I'm going to devote a lot of time to graduate medical education, which has always been a passion of mine uh, at the medical examiner's office at the fellowship level, here at Mount Sinai, more at the residency level, uh, and trying to recruit people uh, into uh, forensic pathology if they have that inclination. They have a very strong autopsy service here that I will also be participating in. And uh, Mount Sinai also has a wonderful medical school, and I hope to look for ways to attract more people into pathology in general. And I think the way I'm going to attack that is by trying to get medical students more exposure to pathology earlier in their career. I was lucky. I had a dad who said... <laughs> How about pathology? I mean, how many people have that? Uh, you know, how do you find out about this field? Uh, you know, unless uh, you find out about it uh, in medical school. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, you know, usual pathology curriculum, although taught by pathologists, gives you really no insight into what a pathologist does uh, day to day, much less a forensic pathologist, of course. Um, so I'm hoping to dedicate uh, some time into figuring out what we can do to get people into pathology and then specifically uh, into forensic pathology. Uh, other than that, uh, I mentioned the uh, autopsy service here is very strong and they have a, uh, 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 they are participating in a large grant uh, to uh, use autopsy tissue uh, from um, uh, patients who are suffering long-term sequela from COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, to define uh, what that illness uh, really entails uh, at a pathophysiologic level. So I'm very excited to uh, contribute to that as well. Uh, and uh, finally, the cardio cardiology and cardiovascular surgery here is outstanding. And I look forward to uh, participating in that with them as a cardiac pathologist, wherever they can use me uh, in, in research projects uh, going forward to go back to you know, my academic roots 
uh, a little bit uh, and expand on that in the twilight of my career. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy uh, with this transition period, but this has been lovely. Um, and with that, I'll say goodbye to our listeners. It really oh, was a pleasure and an honor. Thank oh, you. My, my, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to to share and hopefully get some you know uh, people interested in pathology. Support for the Free Path Pod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Thank you.